if we're a hundred percent overvalued, we got to find a way to give that back mm. at some point by yeah. some mechanism, somehow it's got to happen. And the question is when, and, and if we're a hundred percent overvalued, we don't give it back. Then our returns are going to be half what historical returns are because you're paying twice as much for a stream of revenue. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Dave Collum. And I just want to welcome Dave back on the show. Dave, welcome. Well, I'm thrilled to be back so soon, too. You know, There's I, more material always. Yeah. Our conversation was so fascinating that I felt like there's some things to follow up on and things that we can discuss. And I think that there's value. You know, what we have just were talking about before we turn on the microphone was the state of the, the media in the world and particularly in the U.S. And, you know, there's conversations that aren't allowed to happen and here we can have them. So let me just remind the listeners about Dave. Dave Collum is a professor of organic chemistry who developed an interest in markets, which in turn led to an interest in geopolitics. Enjoy the human folly of it all. That's what he thinks. He says, I have a natural predilection to be contrarian, which makes me a denier on all, almost all hot topics. Well, in fact, for, for those listening, you can hear Dave's story in episode 660 and also his view about the U.S. and what the U.S. should do about Ukraine. Also, you can read his 2022 year in review. I'll have a link in that in the show notes. Wow, we talked about some interesting ideas for this discussion, good and bad investments, Trump indictments, politically bad things happening in the US, out of balance valuations, geopolitical developments and the dollar as a reserve currency. Dave, take it away. Well, that's a wide open field you just left me. So today, apparently they indicted, they arrested Trump. Did they put him in handcuffs? I just picked up shards of information, but uh, I didn't see that. Um, I, did, I saw him wave the picture of him waving, but I didn't see him in handcuffs. I, I do <laughs> not. I do not see how you possibly indict a former president and a front runner candidate on such ridiculously simple charges. So, if you want to tell me that everything he did, he's guilty of, I would still say, yeah, but he's a presidential candidate and ex president, so. You know, and the, meanwhile, the Democrats are saying, you know, no man is above the law. And boy, does that get my anger going. I uh, I have this urge to say, OK, OK, let's let's start working backwards. Let's start with Biden. We know that, for example, he's gotten multimillion dollar payouts from China. So I'd slap a treason charge on him right out the chute. There's also a tax evasion charge in there, probably, that ought to be investigated. His son ought to probably be thrown in jail for a host of things. Hunter, quite possibly the rest of the Biden family. If you want to keep working back from there, we hit Obama and hard to identify, but he, he bombed seven countries of which none of them attacked us. So I I could imagine that if the world were completely fair and the United States was not the 
world's only superpower, that there might be a, a crime against humanity buried in a few of those bombings. Last year, for example, the, the absurdity of the bombings, last year we bombed Syria, and it was explained by the authorities that we bombed Syria to send a message to Tehran. So I go, okay, let me see if I got this right. We bombed one country to send a message to another country. In what universe is that not a, a crime against humanity? It's just baffling to me. So, so here we had a liberal president who bombed seven Muslim countries. So that strikes me as a problem. He's worth something like a hundred million dollars now. So there's certainly payola all over the place, but hard to identify. Not as not as blatant as not as easily found as as some of the others. Working backwards, would he hit Bush? So oh. I'd hit him with with a crime against humanity on Iraq, since they fabricated the case to go to war with Iraq. There are probably other things I'm forgetting about, but let us just say I voted for him the first time reluctantly and not the second. Working backwards, his father, I'm I'm a reasonably supportive guy, but uh, oh, I got to go to Clinton first. Working backwards and hitting Clinton, he is accused of being a rapist. He's accused of of running a crime syndicate, the, mm. the Clinton Foundation. He's accused of somehow being involved in over 160 mysterious deaths. And so if I were, if he was a Gambino and the FBI said, look, we got to get this guy, I, I think there'd be a lot to work with. I think they'd easily be able, they wouldn't have to use a tax evasion mm. case against him to get him. Now, I'm sure that, for example, his, his, uh, 160 mysterious deaths are not all formally tied to them, but I bet you, you don't know 160 mysteriously dead people. I certainly don't. <laughs> then you go back before it in the Clinton foundation. Uh, that, that is the Gambino crime family right mm, there. I think breaking um, in the bucks. Yeah. Go back to George Bush senior. And, and he looks pretty clean. Although I think it's just because they did a better job. I think the Gulf war was actually a setup, but, mm. but I, Saddam took the bait that we threw to him and he attacked Kuwait. That was uh, our State Department gave him the nod on that, apparently. I wonder uh, if, go if Bush Sr.'s success at hiding it has to do with his experience in the CIA, which is very oh, good that, at covering its that. tracks. Yeah, yeah. And and also protecting him from anyone else who would try to uncover his tracks. Hmm. And so, you know, I'm a Reagan fan, so he did a whole bunch of things. But, you know, it's this point now you're starting to get into the sort of brass knuckles of geopolitics. And mm. it, it, the stuff doesn't look as surreal as the stuff now. I would have to say that the current administration looks the bleakest in that and their ties with Ukraine are profound. Mm. And we're pushing the U.S. to the cusp of World War Three, potentially. We committed an act of war against Germany by bombing the pipeline. You know, so you can indict Trump on hush money to get Stormy Daniels to shut up, which there's not even evidence that it's illegal. Mm. But even if it was on the scale of one to 10, it's about a point two. Even if you hate Trump, it should be a point two. And if, if, if you're incapable of seeing that, then you just you hate Trump so much it's blinding you. Because I would like to think that the Republicans wouldn't indict a front runner Democrat candidate, too. I, I, I would be just as appalled at that. And so so that's the world we're in. And it seems like it's someone said someone referred to it as it looked. Oh, it was Doug Murray said this looks like horribly 
horribly the end of empire. And I would agree with that, actually. January 6th, what a disaster that is. Yeah. So the first charge, let's say, against Trump that we can say, the first, not charge against Trump, but the first argument is that, well, it's unprecedented and it's ridiculously small charge compared to the crimes that prior presidents have done. And therefore, it's ridiculous on that side of things. The other part of it that's kind of interesting coming from outside of the US, I asked a friend here in Thailand, do you think that someone who has been convicted of a felony is allowed to run for president in the US? Are they allowed to run for president in Thailand? And the answer is, if you've been convicted of a felony in Thailand, you're not allowed to run as prime minister. But that's not the case in the US. And I asked my friend, why do you think that is? And I think my explanation is that our founding fathers in the US were smart enough to understand that that the politicians will do anything to knock out their opponent. And therefore, even right. a charge of a felony does not override the popular vote of an individual. And that is right. another angle that you know makes me think about how the political system is just being broken in America these days. And here's the problem. I'm well aware that both parties are filled with skanky prostitutes, but this looks like the left to me. I've challenged myself to find, you know, show me where the right wing is behaving badly. And I, I just can't, I can't get close to what the left is doing. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder if, if the sinister forces that are causing them to do this really have nothing to do with the left at all and have mm. something to do with, you know, sort of the, the new world order to sort of stuff. And I, I hate to go there, but it just it feels like there's some there's some underlying power that's trying to bring down the U.S. as a superpower, which personally, I understand why there's countries, the ones we bomb, for example, would love to bring down the U.S. So. You know, we talk about bringing down Russia, you know, so it, it seems pretty straightforward to me that the U.S. would would be in the sights of somebody. And I just everything just looks wrong. You know, the pull out of Afghanistan looks like a catastrophe. You know, picking on Russia looks like a catastrophe to me, forcing the the Ukrainian war forward. And, and if you don't think we force the Ukrainian war, the listener that is, you haven't read enough. Yeah, That was clearly a NATO driven, NATO motivated, NATO instigated war. And I've written a lot of pages on it. And I think I could, given time, convince somebody, not necessarily anybody, but somebody that that we're sending weapons to the wrong side. That It's that absurd. And uh, Zelensky is the guy who should go. Yeah. And if we look at the history of the American support of people like Zelensky, and let's just take Saddam Hussein, who was a a friend right. of America for many years, and then all of a sudden the tables turn. And I would say that my prediction is that Zelensky's end in this thing is not going to be a pleasant one, unfortunately. Right. And also when you look at the the situation going on outside of the US where I am, and you look at Asia as an example, I think you're, you know, the US is losing support and faith, I think to some extent. And, you know, what was interesting about the Trump years, Dave, that I've, I found fascinating is when Trump took on Xi Jinping, which I didn't like the whole way that that went down, where he's trying to basically stop the trade and all of that, you know, and he, he had his opinion about how to make things more fair. 
I wasn't in favor of the way that went, but I sent a message to some of my Chinese friends in China on their WeChat, which we used in China and use in China quite a bit. And what was surprising to me is the amount of support that the Chinese had for Trump. I didn't expect that any of my Chinese friends would be supporting that, but what they saw was a person who stood up to Xi Jinping. And that was a fascinating thing. So as I look at what faith do Chinese people have in Biden? And when you know that it's not Biden, it's people behind the scenes that are somehow setting the whole agenda, it gets even more murky. Then you think about, okay, the pullout out of Afghanistan was the last, let's say, military presence in, let's say, the Middle East to the, you know, to the East. And if you look at what's happening in, you know, with India's relationship with Russia growing and, you know, just, I would say, neutral with the U.S., I would say the U.S. is really losing political and, you know, philosophical support. And that's the biggest thing that I think is being lost right now. What are your thoughts about kind of the shifts that are happening, you know, geopolitically or in that sense? Well, I, I have sort of two minds of Trump's relationship with Xi Jinping. I read a couple of books about it. Not that that helps me. One by Michael Pillsbury, the the Hundred Year Marathon, I think it was called. Okay. And I, I get the feeling, on the one hand, that Xi Jinping psychoanalyzed Trump and said, "Okay, we can turn his narcissism against him in a very big way, so we can play him like a fish." On the other hand. Another lobe of my brain says the whole thing could have been kabuki theater. Like when um, when we agreed with Russia, with the Soviet Union to pull missiles out of Turkey, we apparently told them, said, look, here's what's likely to happen is going to leak to the press. And then there's going to be a shitstorm. And you know, we're going to deny it, but we promise we'll pull them out. Mm. And that was okay with the Soviet Union because that's how diplomacy works. It's, it's, it's a lot of diplomacy done by handshake. A lot of it's like, look, if you lie to me once, that's it. So better not do it. Mearsheimer is very good on this point. Hmm. So so it's conceivable that, you know, that, that Trump and Xi Jinping sat down and Trump said, look, I got to, you know, pretend to be a supporter of the American man. And I, I got to bring some stuff back and you're just going to have to live with it. But overall, hmm. we're cool. So I, I don't think I didn't see Trump going to Xi Jinping in a way that was particularly disturbing. Mm. He just we had to onshore some jobs. I think Xi Jinping probably knew that, right? He yep. said, "Okay, yep. we've owned these guys so long, you know. Okay, we'll give Trump." And I think he liked playing Trump, so I think he wanted to give Trump enough slack to do what he had to do. And the the book you refer to is called The Hundred Year Marathon: China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower as you mentioned by Michael Pillsbury, and I'll have a, a link to that in the show notes. I haven't read that particular one. It looks fascinating. I did read, what's his name? George Friedman, I think Friedman from Strat. Stratford. Yeah, and that was the 100 year American century, basically saying that the US's lead was so strong in things like education and things like the Navy, and the ability to launch a Navy from the Atlantic and the Pacific just let America in a dominant position. I start to wonder, I start to question that nowadays, but you know that I think that was also very well argued. Well, the other thing is one of Friedman's employees, Peter Zihan, has been out there hawking his book about demographics. And there's things I really don't agree with him on, but I think he has embedded in a 
super confident presentation, yeah. <laughs> like ridiculously confident presentation, are some really interesting ideas about the importance of America projecting military power and how it opened up globalization. And without it, the high seas would be Barbary pirates. And and there's no other there's no other country that can project the kind of power needed to keep the seas open for trade. And it kind of caused me to pull back a little on my Monroe Doctrine thinking that said, look, let's just pull back and leave Europe to Europe and Asia to Asia. And then Zion, again, as much as I had some allergic reaction to his his work and to his presentation, there were important points being made. Yeah, I can't remember if it was you. I I guess it was probably in our prior discussion that turned me on to that. I've been listening to it on audio and I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But from an audio perspective, he's definitely he's definitely into his presentation, you know. And yeah, he really loves it. He he really he's there's no lack of self awareness. <laughs> and you know, it leads to another question about logic and reason. Is that sometimes we can be on the trail of a lot of interesting connections, correlations, maybe in some cases, causation in some cases, and we can build a lot of confidence in our view. And then find out that, you know, in fact, later wrong. find out we were very wrong. And <laughs> I know it's scary, actually. I've talked to my brother about that. And I said, I say, Ned, what what would happen if you know we talk about all these narratives? There's just dozens of them yeah. at this point that, that make the world look like a sick place. So what, what would happen if all of a sudden you find out they were they were all wrong? You know, the the, the Vegas shootings were not were not as some some crazy sovereign state thing that that 9-11 was was really was just a bunch of Arabs flying planes and stuff like that. And uh it would rattle my cage because mm. I've spent a lot of time trying to get my brains around these ideas. So I'm well aware that some of it's wrong and certainly in detail. Mm. So so the number of layers of the onion on these stories, you know, if, if you got the answer key, you'd go, oh my God. I did not know that, right? I did not realize that. I, there's no question that we can't, from our perspective, get it right. But that's different than getting it wrong. Mm. <laughs> the, there, there's, there's a big gray zone in between the two. And, you know, let's let's now look forward about politics in the U.S. I mean, as a lot of people outside of the U.S. are investing in the U.S., they're looking at the U.S. market, they're looking at the rule of law in the U.S., and, you know, they're looking at the political environment to think, you know, what's going to happen with where does this thing with Trump leave the Republican Party? Does that mean he's assured to be the front runner? And if Biden can't literally get up to a podium to present and, you know, lead the party, which I think is very possible by the time we get to the election, who's going to lead from the Democrat party and what direction is America going? I mean, it's just like, as I look at it, having left there 30 years ago, it just seems like it's destroying itself. Is there any, is there any hope for where America's going? Well, if the Democrats put up Biden, they deserve absolutely every sack of garbage that comes their way because he's just not equipped to be president. He just doesn't have a full deck left. And 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 if they think that's the right move for the country, which they certainly don't, then if they're willing to do something that bad for their own personal needs rather than for the good of the country, then they deserve to be a, a party for the history books at that point. I, mm. I, I just, the amount of scorn I would heap on the, the DNC. And I'm starting to get a little anxious over people who would vote for him. I just 
I wouldn't vote for Hillary no matter what, because I thought she was a criminal from head to toe, a criminal. Hmm. It didn't matter who she ran against. Now, if I couldn't vote for the person she ran against, I'd not vote. You know, there's all sorts of alternatives. Nothing could get me to pull the lever for Hillary. And Biden should be in that boat for a lot Hmm. of people because he's just not equipped to be president of the United States. And so I have this feeling he will not be the candidate. I think that they're I think they're buying time to find someone to come in who's not Kamala Harris. I think Kamala Harris is their nightmare, not not Biden. And I think they'll probably they ought to be able to find somebody. The guy I could vote for from the left would be someone like Bobby Kennedy, but they'll never let him get near the White House. Not in a million years is he getting near the White House. Yeah, it's interesting. uh, His you know, announcement of his potential, his interest is he's checking out whether there's interest out there and whether he should run. And I know there's a lot of people that, you know, including myself that, you know, appreciate what he's done. But the problem that I face there with him as a potential candidate is that there's nobody from the Democrat party that's going to vote for this Democrat. No one from the the democratic structure. Right. There might be people who would vote for him, but there's yep. no one. He won't get the DNC backing. So he'll get he would have to pull off an upset of the magnitude of Trump. Right. Mm. And so I think the Republican bench looks much deeper. Right. So so Trump could muck it up a by by running. He might be a dominant candidate. I don't know. Mm. But but it's certainly if he's I'm not convinced he's running. I think he he may very well be trying to steer the party's politics and that as long as he stays in the limelight, he's able to do that. So he might be trying to keep Trumponomics and MAGA and stuff front and center. Well, you could also make the candidate sign off on it. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that his his strategy, knowing that he's got these indictments coming and, you know, all kinds of pressures that he kind of had to announce that he's running for president for the political cover that that gives him. And that when the ultimate time comes for him to step down and hand it over to someone else is a very real possibility, I think, you know, and being the the kind of seen as the puppet master behind the, the scene. So it's an interesting one, which raises another question. You know, it's, it's not uncommon in uh, third world countries and countries that are not very democratic, that there's a person behind the scenes pulling the strings. It's financing the whole thing. And the prime minister of the country is just a a figurehead and not a particularly bright guy, but he's going to implement the policies of that person behind him who's funded him to get there. And it it leaves you, when, when you look at Biden, it's very clear that it's impossible for him at this point to set any particular strategy and follow it and lead the White House and the executive branch in following that. So who is pulling the strings behind the scenes in this government? I mean, there's you know, you could say there's technocrats like Blinken and the State Department have, you know, a constant war agenda. Is it the CIA? Is it the military? Like, who's running America? You're missing the obvious. Xi Jinping. <laughs> right. He owns Biden. He could destroy Biden in a heartbeat. Every hmm. single deal that Hunter cut while in China was recorded. Every conversation of every American to ever do anything in China is recorded. Mm. Presumably, Joe has stuck his foot in his face a remarkable handful of times. So far of those bank transactions that are said to be sketchy, from the first two, they tally $6 million of payments from China to the US. And so Mm. 
you are now in this situation where we've got a president who's hopelessly compromised by at least two countries, Ukraine mm-hmm. and China. And then the question is, when he makes a decision that seems absurd, how do you know that it's in any way intended to be in the interests of the United States? And to counter that, you know, when we look at the in the Congress, it's just it's a war footing with China. If you look at the executive branch and you look at the State Department, I think it's a war footing with China. If you look at the Department of Defense and their strategy that they announce online, they make it very clear that China is the number one adversary. And so on the one hand, I see your point of the potential to control the behaviors of Biden. But on the other hand, he's not doing a very good job of keeping America off China. You know, if Xi Jinping can control the situation, he's not doing a very good job because it just seems like it just gets more and more down that war path. What what are your thoughts about that? Well, again, it could be professional wrestling, right? (laughs) Our media, so I don't know. I did a poll the other day Hmm. on transgender athletes in women's sports. If you watch the media, you would swear this was a hotly debated issue, right? This was a a front and center issue. My poll said, do you support it? Yes or no. No waffling, just yes or no. Hmm. 98% said no. This is a non-issue, except for the fact the media is making an issue. So I have utterly given up on believing that the media is anything but a pack of pathological liars, with the exception of the indie group, the independent media. And so so when the free market fails, whether it's the economic free market or the free market of ideas, the black market shows up. Mm. And and right now, you and podcasters of other types and bloggers on Substack, they are the black market of ideas. And so I could imagine that the entire China drumbeat has no reality to it. But I don't know what it's about. I just don't have a clue. Let's let's shift on to a couple of other interesting topics. You know, you and I talked before this about the the idea of kind of what's your good and bad investments and process and kind of your views on that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your thinking about what makes your good or bad investments and you know what is it what does process have to do with that? Well, I should probably do a thumbnail sketch of my 40 years of investing. My first big internet writing was actually uh, in 09, and it, it was entitled 30 Years of Investing from the Cheap Seats. And I did this big sort of look at it. But so in 1980, when I started investing, it was nothing but bonds. Mm. And it was because interest rates were humongous, right? You could get a great return. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I just knew that you know money markets, fixed income, which is amazing, and equities had sucked so badly. So I was going on a recency bias, but it turns out that bonds did great. Mm. The 87 crash in equities. Afterwards, I found myself sitting in the faculty lounge with an old guy who said, Dave, you really ought to be buying equities. And so I looked into it and said, oh, he's right. And so I actually went and and flipped equities in 87 post-crash. That wasn't a good timing. The crash is what got me talking about Mm. it. I hadn't even thought about it. And so I was in equities until in the early to mid 90s, I got enthusiastic as your typical boomer starting to accrue some wealth and was very bullish. 
Mm. So the, the bubble had started because they had me by the short hairs and, and the bubble had had a grip on me. And so I had a contact who's a traveling salesman through pharma who would I'd have lunch with him and he'd tell me what all the CEOs and stuff were telling him. And it was a great source. I mean, he had good information. And the more he traveled, the more all the CEOs wanted to have lunch with him. So it was really he was a conduit. And he gave me some ideas, one of which was a small company called LDDS that that was a small company in Mississippi that sold bandwidth that turned into WorldCom Mm. and did really well and started acquiring everything under the sun. By, by, I'd say, mid-98, early 98, I started to get a little queasy about the markets because I'd read enough saying, wait a minute, this is now starting to get out of control and I've read enough books now. And so in... Curiously, at the, in the beginning of July 98, I emptied half my equities. And then we went right into the Asian crisis. Right. And I was feeling like a half genius, half moron. And I said, look, if this comes back, I'm getting rid of the other half because there really was something wrong. And so I came back. And by mid-99, I had dumped everything. <laughs> and I had, so in the, in the world of seemingly great investments, I had made 700% at WorldCom. 700% on Dell, four or 500% on Warner Lambert, a company called Tomra, which recycles bottles, was this thing I kind of stumbled into a Norwegian company. Everything worked great. So I thought I was a genius. Mm. And I, I emptied them all. So I, I was the guy who got out of WorldCom in time and uh, pretty close to the top. And then I got into gold. And, and so, so let's just, for the listener out there, Remember, it was 1999, 2000. We had the tech boom, the dot bubble. bubble. So you're getting out just before that. So I had at least, at least maybe two years. I can't remember because mm. it was so long ago. But two at least one year price. where I made, where I made over 100 percent on my assets at risk. Okay. And to show you what a bubble it was, is I was 50 percent leveraged on top of that. So you could do some quick math as to how much that was, right? And if I'm leveraging long tech stocks, then we are in a bubble. So those were brilliant investments in terms of return and horrible investments in terms of process. I had not a clue what I was doing. And so then I went to cash completely. And then I went into gold. And the most brilliant investment was I white knuckled gold for two years. Mm. When the NASDAQ kept going up for a while, and then it started going down, but gold went down for another two years. And and what kept me in the gold, I'm I'm not quite sure. I thought inflation was a risk. I was worried about inflation. I went into I wanted to get into commodities in 01-ish. Mm. And I couldn't <laughs> figure out how to do it. And there really wasn't, there weren't simple ways to do it for amateurs, complete amateurs. And so I I talked to Clyde Harrison, who was Jimmy Rogers' partner and the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Mm. And I I came out of it a little creeped out. I didn't like it. I didn't like the fact that it was basically just an options-driven fund. And I now understand why, but at the time, it just felt sketchy. Mm. I talked to the market maker, one of the eight market makers in it, and I didn't feel better. So I didn't do it. But instead, I just went after a whole pile of energy mutual funds of fidelity. So I... I rode those all the way up through through the knots. And so curiously, as gold went from 256 up to 1900 at one point, hmm. and the energy soared. So, so the decade following the tech 
was really my best relative decade relative to the world, where while the world was getting pounded by two nasty bear markets, I compounded 13% a year. Mm. And mm. and that that was extraordinary. And it's because I had just cash and gold and, and I had some gold equities that ended up sucking in the end. And then the biggest mistake I made in terms of outcome, but not the biggest mistake I made in terms of process was that I, I was very tepid buyer at the bottom at 09. And the reason was really tepid. I mean, I bought almost nothing. Mm. And the reason was, is because every event in history that had looked that bleak, there was way more damage left to come. Mm. And so you, you simply do not do to the economy what the Fed did to the economy. What I didn't see and what best I can tell no one on the planet saw coming. So this is why the process was fine, was $30 trillion of stimulus. Right. And and I, I just if you told me that, you know, when Bear Stearns got bailed for 30 billion, it sucked the oxygen out of the room. And 30 mm. billion is nothing now. Right. They do that on a weekend now. And so there's just no way of seeing it coming, in my opinion. And there's people who will do revisionist history and say, oh, yeah, I, I, I saw the rally coming. What I saw was, you know, sort of 1929 to 30, 31, then, you know, dead cat bouncing. And I, I said, we're going down. We're going down destructively hard before this is over. And somehow the Fed saved it. And they did. They had sex with barnyard animals. They did everything imaginable. And I missed it. Hmm. So I, I did something like 4% annualized over the, the teens. And while everyone else was getting pretty well off. And I'm still heavily in gold and I'm heavy in cash. In 2020, what could prove to be the bottom, but you never know. I, I started going into energy, but I didn't size it. Mm. But it was a good idea. De Exxon got kicked out of the Dow and I go, oh, that's interesting. Jesse Felder pointed out that during my greatest moment of owning energy, it was 16% of the S&P. And it, it was, it was, I'd gotten knocked out of it, believe it or not, against my will by, by my retirement account. Mm. So it saved me some money, but it was 2% of the S&P. And I said, energy fuels the world and it's 2% of the S&P. So I go, that's another buy signal, mm. right? Mm. So in 2020, I started buying energy, but I didn't size it huge. So it was enough to feel pretty good about it. Yep. But it, it was it was not it was not huge. I still have a lot of cash. And I wonder uh, if you have some advice for people that are, let's say, professionals, whether they're engineers or professors or doing, you know, professional job. And they some people in that space, when they look at finance, they think, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I don't know anything about it. Or they just go to an advisor and stuff. But there's plenty of them that are that want to become a little bit more active in what they're doing. I kind of went the route of studying finance, you know, kind of formally right. and working in finance as my route to kind of learn. But I'm curious, what advice would you give a young professor, a young engineer, a young professional that didn't study it and wants to be active? Someone asked me that not too many days ago for books. Hmm. And I said, well, most of the books I read that help me investing are not about investing. And so I read a lot of books about history. And, and if I'm reading about investing, it'll be about sort of historical components of some James Grant book or Edward mm -hmm. Chancellor's recent book is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Morgan Housel's book was actually pretty good. But I'll read about neuropsychology and medieval history. And, and it's amazing how things that you thought were unrelated all of a sudden pop up and you go, oh, they blew that back then, didn't they? That sort of thing. 
my fear going forward, and I was thinking about this today, the investors should be wary of, of bad comps. And to me, a bad comp, we've been through a 40-year run that I think is over. Mm. And the problem is, if you look back 10 years, you're going to get draw the wrong conclusion than if you look back 40 years. So again, 40 years ago, we started a, a demographic run to die for with the boomers entering the workforce and China bringing cheap labor and Russia bringing cheap resources and interest rates dropping from 16 to zero, which is Buffett's favorite, favorite bull market indicator. And what that produced is an astonishing stat, which I never see anyone quote, is that the valuations, which really should just flop around, right? They really shouldn't go. They shouldn't trend, right? <laughs> right? The valuations over those 40 years annualized went up 3% a year. Mm. And so, so you had a 3% a year tailwind for 40 years. Now, I like to ask the question, what happens if that reverts? And there's no reason to think it won't because it always does. So there will be low valuations and high valuations. What happens if over the next 40 years, we go negative 3% a year valuation drop, right? Yep. And, and that will be, that's a net 6% flip. And it'll be an incredible headwind that will be insurmountable trying to get past that headwind. That'll be like trying to sail upwind. And now, on top of all that, on top of all that, we've got an economy that really looks crappy to me. Mm -hmm. And, oh, Robert Gordon's book, there's a recommendation. I can't, it's about wealth creation. I can't remember. Okay. Search Gordon's book right there and give all him right, the name of it. Let's see. Robert Gordon. It's a brilliant book, actually. And I reached out to him and said, your book is still just timeless. The rise and fall of American growth. Yeah, that would be it. That would okay. be it. Yeah. It's just, it's just this beautiful description. And he talks about how basically the industrial revolution went from 1870 to 1940. Growth mm. was fantastic. He points out some interesting ditties. He distinguishes between primary inventions, which are like running water, electricity, things like that. And secondary inventions, which would be dishwashers and appliances and you know things that that stand on the shoulders. So the internet would be a primary invention, right? That's sort of right. And he says that the best decade in U.S. history for secondary inventions was the 1930s. You know, mm. really? Wow. And he he says that from from 1970 to about to the present, it's been incredibly flat the actual growth in the economy if you right. if you look at if you look at it through the right lens and he says there's a brief bump between 95 and 2005 which would be the digital bump and that would be the period where computers really roared onto the scene and the internet showed up and things got digitized and then it stalls out again and you can say oh no that's not true yeah it is because i've been all week fighting all sorts of login problems and i don't know about all your listeners, but if I have to do a double verification, it doesn't seem to want to work for me one more time. I'm going to smash my computer, right? There's things that should not be on the internet. They mm. just, they should be done the way they did them in the old days. And so I'm not convinced that the digital world has created the efficiency right. that people, in fact, Gordon, was it Gordon or someone else said the digital world is, is but great, created great wealth, but just don't expect to find it in productivity. <laughs> and uh, the point being is this, that we spend a lot of time flopping around. If Facebook went away today, what would you miss? Twitter, what would you miss? We'd actually be more productive because we wouldn't be hanging out on Twitter. 
there are just so many parts of the world. Amazon, here's the answer. Amazon is not a pioneering company. Mm. The pioneering company was Sears Roebuck. Right. Sears Roebuck, they put out a catalog at the turn of the century and they mailed it out and you could order tens of thousands of things from it. And a couple of weeks later, we'd show up on a train and instead of buying nails from a barrel in a country store, you could order prefab houses and parts for your tractor and all sorts of stuff. That's just Amazon. And Amazon, yes, it's faster and it's bigger, but the pioneer was Sears Roebuck. I think that's a great place to to wrap up. One of the things that you're highlighting is the importance of understanding that the returns in the stock market are a function of two things. Let's say the first part of the return is what you're getting for the earnings of a company and what that earnings is paying in dividends. And the second part that you're getting when you're investing in the stock market is the premium that people are willing to pay for those earnings. I call that the dream factor. And I do a whole analysis on that because that's all future driven. And when we look at a long-term period of time, very long, hundred years, we see that basically the dream factor washes out. It goes up. Yeah. Ed Macquarie. Decades, Ed, Macquarie. Ed Macquarie. Ed Macquarie. You want to look up yep. Ed Macquarie's yep. papers. I, I came up with I have two sets of definitions that one of them seem to stick. The definition of a bull market is something that you have a big position in. The definition of a bubble is something something that went way up that you have no position in. And the other is overvaluation is appreciation pulled forward, which is a savings, cobbling of the savings aphorism. And so if you're overvalued now, and I have us 100% overvalued, my valuation metrics, I use about 25 I have us about 100% over historical fair value. Be careful because everyone likes to use recent decades to, to consider what valuation should be. We left orbit in 94. Mm. Our valuations took off and didn't look back. And that's, that's a big part of where that 3% compounding came from was 1994. So the question then is, if, if we're 100% overvalued, we got to find a way to give that back mm. at some point by yeah. some mechanism, somehow. It's got to happen. And the question is when, and, and if we're 100% overvalued, we don't give it back, then our returns are going to be half what historical returns are because you're paying twice as much for a stream of revenue. What a, How's that a win? I, uh, yeah, I think this is a great way to, for everybody to listen up. We're going to wrap up this episode now, but what I really want to do is highlight a few things that Dave has talked about. Since the 90s, we've had the headwind of interest rates falling. Since the 90s, tailwind. we've had tailwind. a head, headwind tailwind. of China and the tailwind. labor. Ta uh, sorry, no, the tailwind. tailwind. The tailwind supporting the market. And we've had the tailwind of the Chinese labor force entering the market, driving down costs. And we have the falling of oil prices, which I suspect, as you've kind of alluded to, is, is related to Russia starting to enter the, the oil and energy market and also just general pumping that was going on. And these things cause market valuations to go high. And now we've had it for such a long time that we are in for potential reckoning. Anything you would add to that? Yeah, there are three periods in US history where if you, if you owned at the high, I made a plot of this, someone wants it, I'll send it to them. If you owned at the high, like in the 1906 high, Yep. If you inflation adjusts and you look at just capital gains, you then 
obviously have a wretched bear market. You come back, you return to that original high, you go up for a while, and then eventually you make it back to the same high. And those periods in which you treaded water, not which you not only went from the high to recover, but you went back to the high for the last time, and let's pray it's mm. the last time, those three periods lasted 40 to 75 years. So if you are an owner at the high, you might be able to trade your way around it. But I, I guarantee you, no one made money on the Nikkei. Mm. The Nikkei has been just a wipeout <clears throat> until recent years. And and so, so I think we're looking at a generational bear market. There's going to be a bear market where you and I are old men and and the bull in earnest will start up again. Right. But I, I don't think we're talking, you know, a year of downswing and then back to the races. I think it's I think it's a game over in a in a very, very big way. And this happens, right? This mm. happens. Yep. I think it's it's time. So that's a great warning for all of us. You know, we talk about trying to reduce risk, you know, and we have a lot of excitement that the Fed's going to save the day and all that. But I think Dave brings us back to the reality that we have had fantastic times for decades, and it's time to pay attention and think about a different way of looking at things. And that's a wrap on another great discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host saying thanks to Dave for joining us and sharing your thoughts. And I'll see you all on The Upside.